you can tell as you uh, have heard the different things that are going on that there's sort of a time has become compressed and there is event after event after event. And so it's uh, things kind of rush up on us and we think, wow, that's that's next week already. And and uh, things are coming very soon. The summer is uh, is filled up. And um, I'm excited about going to Gab's. I'm excited about ministering there and getting to minister with a couple of my children and with the youth. It's going to be an exciting time. And then uh, very shortly after that, we have the India trip. And so there are seven of us going to India. And uh, I, I wanted to give you some information regarding that and then ask for your prayers in, uh, in, in connection with that also. Of the seven of us, it seems like there are three of us who are having difficulty getting our visas from the consulate in San Francisco. There was some problem with photos or photo quality or something. I don't really get it because six of us went down to Walgreens together and had our picture taken. And and uh, four of those, it seemed to have worked just fine. And two, it didn't work. There was some problem with the photo, even though it was done at the same time, at the same place, by the same photographer. I, I don't get it. I don't know what the difference is. And so we'll probably never know that. But we're we're uh, we're still good on time. But uh, definitely we could use your prayer because... The uh, departure date looms, and you have to have visas or else you can't get off of the plane at that end. <laughs> so um, we really need that. So I ask for, for your prayer for that, that, that the Lord would provide the, uh, the visas for the whole team and that they would get back to us in due time, and we would have them and be able to, to uh, at least not be concerned about that, right? So that's, that's one issue I'd ask for prayer regarding. Another issue uh, regarding this is that uh, I just asked Rochelle this morning to give us the total of our, of our funds uh, that, that have come in so far. And we are looking at around uh, $17,500 that we need or 18000 total that we need for our trip. And right now we're at $11,000. $11,145 have come in, so that's a huge praise. That's incredible that, that uh, the Lord using largely you people has, uh, has provided in this way. And so we praise the Lord for that, and we thank you for that. We're, we're almost there. We're getting there. And so uh, um, I, I would appreciate it if you would continue to pray about that. And if the Lord prompts you to, to, to give some more, or maybe you've been thinking about it or whatever, just that's where uh, the circumstances are financially. And so I'd ask for your prayer in that regard. It's an exciting opportunity that we have there, but it's coming very quickly, very quickly. And so I wanted to lay that out before you. I'd open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And so before we go any further, I wanted to uh, do two things. First of all, say Happy Father's Day to all the dads. It's exciting, I know. And second of all, I, I want to, to pray. So let's pray together. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we rejoice that you have given us true words from yourself about life, about you, about us, about how we can know you. You've told us that in scripture. Lord, I'm, I'm struck daily uh, by how thankful um, uh, we should be that we don't have to fumble around in the dark and try and figure things out on our own, but you tell us. And what a wonderful thing that you tell us. So Lord, as we open your word, as we look at it, and we, we think about uh, being dads and what that means and, and how we can do that well in a, in a biblical way, I pray for your help, Lord. I pray that your spirit would uh, work in our midst, that we as dads, I as a dad, can be, uh, can be proud at times, and, and, uh, and sometimes it's difficult to receive instruction from others. 
uh, or frankly, I'm proud and sometimes it's difficult to receive encouragement from others. And so that's my heart, and, and I'm probably not alone in that. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning. I pray, as Chris prayed, that, that you would help us to set aside the things that are in our minds, um, clamoring for our attention, demanding our attention, demanding our thoughts while we should be uh, pondering your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to set those things aside, that you, by your Spirit, would work in our hearts, that we would be able to be still and know that you are God during this time. We ask for your help and we ask for your work. Lord, this is, this is your morning. Uh, these are your people. This is, uh, is uh, your pulpit and this is your word. And so I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak your message to us. We look forward to hearing from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was uh, reading the Bible yesterday, just my regular devotions, and I was reading through in uh, Proverbs chapter 17 and ran across a verse that I've read before because I've read Proverbs you know, more than once. Uh, I had read this verse before, but it never stood out to me, ever, like it did on the day before Father's Day. right? Proverbs 17 and verse 6, the second half of that verse says this, the glory of children is their fathers. I thought that was pretty neat that the Lord just gave that to me. The glory of children is their fathers. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting because normally you hear it the other way, uh, particularly in Scripture, that you know about about what uh, children does for uh, do for parents, you know, and what the way we think about them and the way we um, invest them in, in them, and we uh, all all of that. We 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 pray for them and all that. That that the uh, the glory of of parents oftentimes is their children, but this is the glory of children is their fathers. And so I read that, and and this was just yesterday. I didn't write the sermon yesterday, so don't don't be too worried. But uh, I thought I thought it fit in pretty well that um, yesterday this popped up: the glory of children is their fathers. And I thought, you know what? Um, children rejoice in their dad. Children rejoice in their dad. They they love their dad. And I think this is the root of the uh, the phrase that you've heard on the playground occasionally: that my dad can beat up your dad. That it's actually biblical. So I. <laughs> I think it probably comes from this verse. <laughs> they're just quoting scripture and they're just doing it wrong. I think that's what, maybe that's not the case. I don't know, but, but I think that's where it comes from, right? Because we love our dads and we think our dads are awesome, right? And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we take our cues from our dads. I, I stand like my dad stands. I never practiced it. I never tried to. I never, you know, watched him and did this. I walk like he walks. You know, I've always been uh, told that I look like my mom. In the face, I look just like my mom. And people who know her well and meet me for the first time know exactly who I am just because I look like my mom. And yet sometimes I'll be with my dad and people will say, you look a lot like your dad. And that's neat. I like that. I, I, I take my cues from my dad. For me, the definition of what a man is comes from my dad. There were, there were certain things about life in Russia and uh, Russian definitions of what a man is. And, and it's, uh, you know, pretty macho and stuff like that. And and um, it just didn't click with me and I didn't get it because I don't take my definition of what a man is from another culture. I don't even take it from my culture. I take it from my dad. That's what a man is. And so I take my cues from my dad, and we do. Children orient their lives based around who dad is. They learn who a man is. They learn how a woman should be treated by the way dad treats mom. Whether, whether you're a daughter or you're a son, you're learning that from watching dad. The glory of children 
is their father's. I thought that was fascinating and fit right in with what we were talking about, fit right in with, with Father's Day. I thought that was a neat thing. And so uh, kids take their cues from their dad. And so today we're going to turn in Judges chapter 2 and we're going to read from here. We're going to look a little bit at uh, the life and the legacy of Joshua, not in relationship to his, his children, his literal children or his natural children, but more in relationship to uh, the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel that he leaves behind him. So we're going to turn to chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 7 through 11 verses 7 through 11 again we're talking about joshua here and the people served the lord all the days of joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived joshua who had seen all the great work that the lord had done for israel and joshua the son of nun servant of the lord died at the age of 110 years and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Herez, in the hill country of ephraim uh, north of the mountain of gash And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So first of all, I want to look a little bit at Joshua's own life. It doesn't talk about his life much in here. So we're going to cruise back through and and look at uh, a little bit of uh, the Pentateuch, a little bit of Joshua and see a little bit about his life. But something we're going to learn about Joshua himself is that his experience with the Lord, his uh, walk with the Lord was full of firsthand encounters, firsthand experiences with God, firsthand stuff. And so that's our first point there, firsthand. First of all, we see that he had this firsthand experience or firsthand walk with God by serving as Moses' assistant. Moses' assistant. Keep your finger here in um, Judges chapter 2 and flip back to Joshua 1, if you would. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, right? Moses, my servant, is dead, etc. So now you're going to lead the people. He goes on and commissions him. Right, But he's, he's listed as Moses' assistant. And as we look back, uh, we're not going to right now, but as you flip back through and look through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see that Joshua has been there all along. He's, he's been a servant, a helper, an assistant, an attendant uh, with Moses all the way through most of this work. If you remember back to uh, in Exodus chapter 17, the battle with the Amalekites, I don't usually remember the battle of the Amalekites, except that Moses was holding his hands up. And he needed help holding his hands up. And as his hands were held up, the Israelites would, would uh, be gaining ground. And as he dropped his hands, they would be losing ground. And things would be going poorly, right? So interesting uh, battle strategy that, that uh, the Lord did there. But who was holding his arms up? Who was helping to hold his arms up and prop him up? Joshua. Joshua was right there. He was an assistant with him. He was an attendant. He was helping him in Exodus chapter 17 in the battle with the Amalekites. So he was right there seeing Oh, Moses' arms came down a little bit. Oh, look, the line is going the wrong way. Okay, we lift him back up. Okay, he's seeing what God is doing, right? He's, he's seen it firsthand as uh, Moses' assistant. He also, this is interesting, he also went up on Mount Sinai with Moses because Moses traveled up several times to get the law, right? When he goes up and he speaks with God and he receives the law and he receives the stone tablets and all this, he goes up several times and Joshua goes with him on at least one of those cases. He goes up there with him. And actually, Joshua was up there with Moses on Sinai 
when the people of Israel convinced Aaron to build the golden calf and start worshiping this golden calf. Remember that story? And then they come down and, and they're angry and Moses throws down the tablets and the whole thing, right? And um, big, big issue. Well, Joshua was right there. He was right by Moses' side the whole time. He had hiked up the mountain too. He had stayed up there with him too and he had hiked back down with him and he had seen what the people were doing, right? And so Joshua was right there with him. He was seeing what was going on from the time he was a youth. He was with Moses, and he was a, a servant, a helper with Moses. And so in all those years with Moses, Joshua got to see God work up close and personal. He was right there. But he wasn't, he wasn't just uh, Moses' assistant. He was also a spy. If you remember, the 12 men went to spy on Canaan, and 10 were bad and 2 were good. Well, he's one of the good guys, right? Joshua and Caleb come back from this. Remember, they were... They were poised to go into the land and, and they were sent in as spies to spy out the land, do some reconnaissance and see what the land is like, what the people's like and, and all that kind of stuff. And they go in and uh, these 12 go in and they come back and 10 of them are shaking in their boots and they're saying, these Canaanites are too tough for us. There's no way. They're huge. And we felt like, we felt like grasshoppers. We were going to be squashed. These guys are enormous. There's no way we're going to do it. And that's the report of 10 of them. And Joshua and Caleb said, now, wait a minute. Who is God? The Lord is God. He can give it to us. Let's go and do it. Right? So they were the minority report, Joshua and Caleb. So he was right there. He was one of the spies. He gets to go in and he gets to be firsthand. He's no longer just standing right beside Moses. He's gone in on his own mission. Right? And he didn't just go along with the flow. He was the minority report coming back with just one buddy and saying, God can do this. Let's go and do it. When the majority said, no, we're not going to do it. So he, he went in. He was involved firsthand. He went on a mission on his own. He, he was put in a place where his own faith was either going to stand or fall. He couldn't rely on someone else. So he was there. He was actively involved. And he went in to spy out the land. And he came back with a good report and said, God can do this. So his faith was strengthened by this time, right? Personally challenged, put to the test, because he himself went on a mission into enemy territory as a spy. And so his walk with God became even more firsthand. So he was a spy. First he was Moses' assistant, then he was a spy. But then also he becomes a leader. Back in Joshua uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 2 and 3, remember it said Moses died and uh, God says to Joshua, Moses' assistant, now you're going to be the leader and you're going to lead the people, right? Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 tell us that right there that he was the leader of the people. He had graduated, something had changed, and he had taken over the mantle. It says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses. So he's become the, the military leader of the people. He's the one in charge. He's not just an assistant, an attendant. But now he's, now he's in charge. He's the leader. And so he's stepped up in his own right, and he's become a leader of the people mil militarily at the beginning of Joshua. But then look at the end of Joshua. Flip over to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. So not, not only was he the military leader of the people, but he was, had also become the spiritual leader of the people. This is Joshua speaking in 14. Uh, 24, 14, now therefore fear the Lord 
and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he's the spiritual leader of the people. He's been the military leader. He's, 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 he's now the spiritual leader. He's been the spiritual leader of them, right? So he's a leader of the people in his own right. His experience with God, his walk with God was very firsthand. It was hands-on. It was him, God using him to do these things, right? Not only that, but back in Judges chapter 2 where we started, remember I said in Joshua 1.1 he was referred to as the servant of Moses? or the assistant of Moses. And now listen, look at verse 8. It says, uh, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And so he started out being someone else's servant, and he was Moses' servant. And that would be you know, a pretty impressive position to have, to be Moses' servant, and that's what he was. But at the end of his life, God puts a new stamp, a new title, and he says, no, He was a servant of the Lord. He personally was a servant of the Lord. He was my servant, God says. God no longer called him Moses' servant, but the servant of the Lord in his own right. Joshua's walk with God was a firsthand walk. It was a hands-on walk. Well, now let's look at the the next generation. We're in Joshua chapter, excuse me, Judges chapter 2 again, and we're looking at the second half of verse 7. We're going to look at a second-hand experience, right? Uh, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and then uh, in all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez in the, in the hill country of Ephraim, uh, north of the mountain of Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So you have a second generation, and this is more of a second-hand generation. First of all, they, they were successors, right? They, they had lived with Joshua, and he was their leader, and they outlived him. When he passed away, they continued to live. Many of them uh, continued to live after he uh, died. They were the successors of what God had done through Joshua, right? They, they took leadership after he died, but it was leadership of what God had done through Joshua. So they were successors. And they were also witnesses. It says they had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So they had seen it. They had witnessed it. We saw something similar with Joshua early on. He was watching. He saw what God was doing through Moses. But what it is, they're a little bit more removed from God's working than than Moses had been and then Joshua had been. They had seen it. They had witnessed it. But they'd been less involved in the process than Moses and Joshua had been. So they were, they were successors and they were witnesses and they were beneficiaries, right? They were beneficiaries. Look where they got to bury Joshua. At the beginning of Joshua's life, this land, just a few decades ago, this land was enemy land. And when Joshua went in, he went in as a spy. Remember, he had to sneak in because it was enemy territory. And now, at the end of his life, when he's being buried, where does the next generation get to bury him? They get to bury him within the land because it's their land. 
They're the beneficiaries of what God has done through him. They benefited from the work of God in Joshua's life. And so that's this next generation. It's more of a second-hand generation that you see there in these middle verses. Now let's look at a third-hand third-hand generation. Second half of verse 10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder how things are going to work out for them. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So you've seen a, a lowering of the standard. Right? You've seen what, what has happened with them, with this next generation. First of all, they were estranged. They did not know God. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. They didn't have a relationship with him. Whereas Moses and God used to talk with each other like friends, face to face. Can you imagine that? That's what they did. And whereas Joshua would be considered uh, a servant of the Lord, that God would give him such an an honorary, an honorable title, uh, this new generation didn't even know God. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. They didn't have that relationship. Didn't know him. So they were estranged. They were also ignorant. It says they not only did they not know him, but they didn't know the work that he had done for Israel. So they didn't even know their history. They didn't even know how they got here. They didn't they didn't they weren't aware of what God had done for them. They were ignorant. They didn't know how they came to live in the land at all. They didn't know what God had done to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, out of captivity when they were slaves for 400 years. They didn't know that. They didn't know what God had done to bring them through 40 years in the wilderness, providing the manna, uh, protecting them from the, the Amalekites and other people, um, providing quail, all the things that God had done, water from the rock, and then to bring them into the land. They, they were unaware of this stuff. They may have known something vague about you know, some stuff, but they, they, they didn't know. They were ignorant of what God had done with their people to bring them into the land. So they were estranged. They didn't know God. They were ignorant. They didn't know God's works. And they were also evildoers and idolaters. Verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned God, and they went after the gods of the land. One of the major reasons that uh, God chose to drive out the Canaanites from the land and the other people groups who lived in the land one of the major reasons was because of the incredible evil of their practices. They weren't just the neighbors. They, they were human-sacrificing neighbors. They were idol-worshiping neighbors. They were murderous, vile. Their religion was atrocious. Not only was it not in agreement with biblical doctrine, it was horrific. It was terrible. There are other things going on, other theological reasons uh, that, that God drove the people out of the land, but that's a big one. We, sh- we shouldn't think, oh, those poor Canaanites just got driven out of their land on a whim. No, not at all. They were the enemies of God. They were actively enemies of God. And here these people, who were the conquerors, who had come in, and under Joshua they had seen God free this land from these people and from this evil and give the land to the Israelites. 
They had seen this. They got to experience this. They got to benefit from it. Now they lived in the land, and just a couple of generations from that time, they looked just like the people who lived there before. And they're doing the same practices as the people who lived there before. They have become like the Canaanites. They're pursuing evil, and they're worshiping the Baals. And so that, that's the situation with this, with this third group. It's very third hand. Everything's distant, right? Things were good under Moses and he was leaving. There were problems. Of course there were problems. And you can read about those problems in the Pentateuch. But the nation of Israel was following after God and they were, they were growing and they were learning and God was using Moses in major ways. Then Moses dies and God uses Joshua in major ways to go in to conquer the land to do all these things, to be the military leader, to be the religious leader of the, of the nation of Israel. And now there's a generation that is estranged from God. They're ignorant of who God is and of what God has done. They become evildoers. They become idolaters. Baal was one of the many, probably the highest God of the land that the former people, the Canaanites, would serve. And now they have given up on the one true God who delivered them and gave them the land, and now they're following after Baal, who's the god of the land, the fertility god, going after not just worshiping him, but worshiping him according to the way uh, the Baal religion said, which was evil, and you can't talk about it in public. And that's what they're doing. That's what they've gone after. So it's a downhill slide. Now, if any of you know the book of Judges, and I hope you all do, it's a very cyclical kind of book, right? You have this downhill slide, and then all of a sudden... They go into captivity and then, and then God provides a judge and he brings them out and, and delivers them and then they do okay for a little bit and then they slide down in to sin and, and evil and idolatry and then they end up in captivity, etc. It's this, it's this rolling cycle throughout the book and it starts right here. You see the first time it starts right here. Now, what I would like for us to do in conclusion is draw some simple observations that are based on uh, Joshua's life and his legacy. And probably you've made some of these connections already. Just some conclusions. Moses, who is Joshua's mentor, and he's his father figure in our story, he made sure to include Joshua in the work that God was doing. He included him. He was right there watching things happen. He was right there nearby when this stuff was going on. When, when Moses would plead with God for the lives of the people because they were so disobedient, that, uh, that God was contemplating destroying them. Moses was pleading with God. Joshua was right there hearing it. He saw Moses' heart. He saw God's response. He saw God's heart. He got to be involved, got to be included, and Moses made sure to include him. Joshua uh, held up Moses' arms in the battle against the Amalekites. He was right there to watch this thing happen. He was straining there to hold his arms up. He was sweating when the battle was going on. He was right there and he saw it happen. He went up on Mount Sinai with Moses to receive direct teaching from God himself. He was right there. Moses included him. And he was sent on a dangerous and difficult mission to spy out the land before the conquest began. So not only was he included in what God was doing with Moses, but he was actually sent actively on missions of his own. And so Moses, who's the father-like figure in this relationship, he sends him. He's equipped him and now he sends him. And Joshua could have lost his life. You know, this, this was a big deal. He wasn't just sending him out for milk and eggs. He was sending him on a dangerous mission. And he, he trusts him and entrusts him and sends him that way. And so uh, my first observation is that Moses made sure to include 
Joshua in the work that God was doing. Secondly, the generation that Joshua led got to see that God that got to see the things that God was doing through Joshua and had heard about all the things that had been done through Moses, but there seems to be a little bit more of a distance between that generation and God himself. Their experience and their their walk with God was sort of mediated by Joshua. Joshua was sort of the mediator between them and God in some way, so that their connection with God was somehow connected to him. There was a little bit of a distance. Something's removed there. While he was alive, that, that didn't seem to be a problem. You don't really see that as a problem. And even after he died, as long as that generation continued on, doesn't really seem to be a problem because remember the people followed the Lord as long as that generation that survived Joshua continued to live. It wasn't until the third generation that we uh, that we start seeing problems. The one that came after this generation that, that outlived Joshua. When that third generation arises, then you start seeing major, major issues. The generation before apparently had not taught them to know God themselves. Apparently it's lacking. There arose a whole generation that didn't know God. It's the generation that comes before that's responsible for passing that on. And apparently they had not done so. Apparently they hadn't even taught them the mighty works that had brought the people out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. They were ignorant not only of relationship with God himself, but even the history of their people, the history of what God had done with them, and they didn't know it. It had not been passed on to them. And so the result was that they were unbelievers and they became evil, and they became idolatrous, and they turned into the people that they initially displaced. And so you see that downward progression. That's not really progression, right? That downward spiral destruction is what they end up in, right? And you see this continued throughout the book of Judges. It continues on and on. So uh, I'm certainly not going to end on a note like that. Hey, happy Father's Day. Um, Don't do that, and we'll see you. I don't want to end that way. (laughs) So what can we learn? What can we draw? Our whole generation, everybody who has kids or expects to have kids, this morning particularly we'll we'll focus on dads, but first of all, what's the first thing that we can learn from this? Know the Lord yourself on a first-hand basis. Know the Lord yourself on a first-hand basis. You may do an assessment of yourself and see which which generation you kind of fit into. Which are you more like? Did you kind of receive some good teaching, uh, but it's kind of mediated through your parents or another generation or something like that? Uh, or maybe maybe you're you're more like a first generation and you've seen God work in your life and you've 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 done things where where it's felt a little bit risky, but you've. you've You've trusted that the Lord wanted you to do that and you went and did it and you've seen God be faithful. You've seen him work closely in your life and use you to minister to other people. Maybe, maybe you're in that first generation. Maybe we're in the third generation. Maybe, maybe some of you find yourself in the third generation where you're thinking, you know what? Um, uh, my dad and my grandpa were, were Christians and they taught me this stuff, but I don't, I don't buy it and I never really cared. And, you know, I, I just kind of go my own way. going to do my own thing i don't know where you find yourself in those amongst those three generations but the first thing that that i want us to take away is that we personally need to know the lord and walk with him ourselves we talk about the gospel a lot and we're going to keep talking about the gospel a lot because it's central to everything else 
And the gospel is not, it's not a, uh, a special prayer that I prayed or like a spell. I almost think in some people's mind, uh, praying to receive Christ is almost like a spell, like a, like a ward or something like that. Like you, you, you prayed this thing and boom, something happened and now you're good to go for the rest of your life. And that is just not the way of it. When, when I, when I prayed to receive Christ, I was trusting in Jesus because I realized I'm a sinner and I can't ditch that. I can't get rid of it. God is holy and so I, I deserve his wrath. And so the response when I first trusted him was to put my trust in Christ. And you know what? In my walk, I continue to put my trust in Christ. I'm never... I, I, that first time I placed my trust in Christ for the first time ever. And that was the first time. Since then, it's been a continual thing. I trust him. I trust him because I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve God's judgment. I know he's holy and righteous. And I would be turned to a sinner if he decided to uh, to burn me out. And he could, except that I trust in Christ. And so I have forgiveness in him. I'm made new in him. I have I have a, a, a restored relationship with him. I'm reconciled with him because of what Jesus has done. And so continually in my life, I trust him. I trust him. I trust him. That's how I know him. That's how I know him. And so when he calls me to go and do things, to walk in obedience to him in some way or another, like go to Gab's, for example, like uh, share the gospel with a friend, when he calls me to do something, I respond in faith. I trust in Christ. And man, other people need to hear this same thing. And so I take that message to them. Uh, it's me walking with him firsthand. So that's the first that's the first thing we can learn from this is know the Lord yourself on a first-hand basis. First-hand basis. Secondly, teach your kids to know the Lord and to know about what he has done for you. Teach them. They need to hear it. They need to learn. This second generation that we looked at, the generation generation that outlived Joshua, they knew the Lord and they knew uh, about what he had done. They had been taught and so we need to teach our, our next generations. I need to teach my children, and you need to teach your children and pass on what God has done, what God has done in your life, who he is, how to know him, how they can know him, what he's done. We need to do that. We need to teach. We need to pass that on, both who he is, how to know him, and what he has done for you. And number three here, a third thing we can learn, I believe this is more of the missing element. I think this is the missing element of why generation two gave birth to generation three, the idolaters. It's this. I believe the missing element is that often we don't take uh, Moses' lead and we don't, we don't include our children in our own walk with God. I think uh, very often it happens that dad has his walk with God and he teaches his children about what their walk with God should be like. Right? Teaching them, passing on to them, rather than taking them and including them in his own walk. What does that look like? What are some ways we can do that? Well, one idea is to take them with you when you go to minister to people. If you're going to serve someone who's in need, you're going to minister to them. You're going to, uh, I don't know, take a meal, whatever. Take your kids with you, right? Take them with you when you're going to go share the gospel with somebody. Maybe your kids are getting a little bit older and they can be right there and they can watch how dad does this and see that it's a normal part of the Christian life, that you do this stuff. When you go serve people, when you go share the gospel with people, when you go to minister to people, take your kids with you and give them a part in it. 
Let them be involved. Include them. Take them with you so that they're included in your walk with God. Another way that uh, we can include our kids in our own walk with God is to... uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll use our family as an example right now. We're, we're expecting a baby. And uh, it's been a long time since we've had a new baby. And so it, it means a lot of changes for us. And we're trying to figure out what those changes look like because I'm 40 now and I was 31 when we had the last one. So what does that look like? Life's different. We're in a different stage, right? So we have some decisions to make as a family. Uh, what is this going to look like and how is it going to change things? And so... One way that we could do it would be for Steph and me to uh, to closet ourselves and discuss this and figure it out and then come out with the answers for our kids. And that's not necessarily bad. And we do a lot of parenting that way, don't we? Talk about it amongst ourselves. But this is an opportunity for us to include our kids in the conversation and see what we're wrestling with and see what challenges our faith and what's hard for us. And, and when we think, I don't really know if God could actually provide in that way and They need to see that we go through this, and as we pray and as we learn, as we grow and make a decision together, that we we went from doubting God's provision, for example, to looking over here and saying, no, God is going to provide. And so now the kids have been included in that, and they've gotten to learn from that, and now they remember when mom and dad went through that decision so that later on in life they can make the decision the same way. Or some some other decision about what God might have you do. Right. The, the, The tendency is and the temptation is for me and my wife to be over here talking about it and then to fill them in uh, when, when we're ready, when we have the answer. And what we've done is we've taken them out of this whole process. When we could have included them in the process in appropriate ways, you don't want to you know, scare your four-year-old with, you know, God's not going to provide for us. And, ah, you know, and it's probably not going to build his faith. You need to do that with some wisdom. But where it's appropriate and in, in the ways it's appropriate, bring them in. Bring them into the discussions. Don't, don't just make the pronouncement and move on because then they're thinking, wow, uh, either God told them or they made the decision, but I have no idea what it looked like, so I guess we'll just go with it, right? Instead, include them, involve them. I think that's what Moses was doing by including him in that stuff. Let them see how you make those decisions. Talk to them through the whole process. Do that. I think of other friends who have made decisions to move and including kids in that is so important. Let them be a part of the conversation. And then thirdly, send them on ministry missions of their own. Well, I love that, that today was the commissioning for the Gabs team because there are a lot of kids up here who are going out on a mission on their own. Now, they're not by themselves, and, and I'm trusting God that no one's life is ever going to be in danger on this thing. I don't think it's the 12 spies being sent into the land, but they're on a, a mission. They're on a ministry mission of their own. They're involved in a ministry that's appropriate for them. They get to go out and step out in faith and share the gospel with their peers or with kids younger than them. They're getting to see what it's like to do this kind of stuff, go into a town where they don't know anybody and start talking to people and ultimately ending up sharing the gospel with them. They're getting to see that. They're getting to do that in their own life. They're they're being empowered when they're doing that. Let them have their own faith stretched. And I think of Joshua when he went, went as a spy. That would have been challenging. And then for him to come back with the minority report, that would have been challenging too. These other ten guys, probably the guys you respect, and you and your buddy disagree with them. And you've got to be bold enough to stand up and say, no, I really don't think that they're right. I think God can do this. And my faith says God can do this. 
That's powerful. That's powerful. Let them have their own faith stretched and they'll, they'll see their own walk with God become more and more firsthand. Firsthand. Because we don't want our second generation to be a second-hand generation. Let's include our second generation in first-hand relationship with God. That's my prayer for my kids. That's my prayer for our youth that I work with. That's my prayer for each of us, is that we would have first-hand generations as our second generation. So that's my encouragement for you. It's it's Father's Day, and uh, so I, I wanted you to be challenged a little bit, but also encouraged. This is very doable, and there are ways you are doing this, for sure. And I'm excited by that, and I think there are going to be great things come from this. But I want us also to be challenged, that we could think, yeah, I, I can... I can help my second generation be a first-hand generation. That's my desire for us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you are gracious with us, that you don't require that we be perfect dads or else, because we are not perfect dads. We are not perfect moms. We are not perfect people. And yet you are gracious and you are good. Lord, we talked about what it means to have a first-hand walk with you, to know you ourselves. And Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone in here who doesn't have that first-hand walk with you, who doesn't know you personally, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, draw them to yourself. I pray that they would understand their need for you, their own fallenness, their own sin that is going to keep them from the presence of a holy God, and that they would trust in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made so that they could be forgiven, so that they could have a restored relationship, a reconciled relationship with God, that they could be in your presence because they've been washed clean by what Jesus has done. I pray that if there's anyone in here like that, Lord, that they would put their trust in Jesus and they would they would come to that point where they know that uh, Jesus is the only hope. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Lord, I I pray that there might be someone uh, or someones this morning who would be drawn to you in that way and would be saved. Lord, I pray also for all the dads. As we read in Ephesians 6, Fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged about that and that we would look and see practical ways that we can do that, include our kids in our walk with you. Certainly we need to teach Certainly we need to tell them about what you've done and all of those things, and I encourage that greatly. But let's, let's uh, Lord, I, I pray that we would bring them along with us in our own walk with you. Lord, I pray for your blessing on um, the men, on the dads. pray that you would give them strength and encouragement and wisdom, and, uh, Lord, that you would provide for their needs and you would give them opportunity to minister to their families. I pray for all the families. Lord, I pray that they would be strengthened, that uh, they would be rooted and grounded in Christ, and that they would find their foundation as their uh, their God, that, that you would be their foundation. I pray that you would do that for them, Lord. Father, we trust you with the rest of our week, trust you with these people, and uh, thank you for your word and your answered prayer. We pray for our dear ones who are sick. pray for your even miraculous work in them. Lord, I pray that you would do that. pray that you would heal our sick members. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.